So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark board movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. Tonight, we are going back to the Korean cinema for a second time on this show. Oh, yeah. We are covering Bong Joon-ho's masterpiece, Mother. Mother. From 2009. Not Darren Aronofsky's Mother, lowercase m, exclamation point at the end. Yeah, different. <laughs> I was always nervous because the first time I think you put this on the board, I thought it was that that movie you were talking about or something. So we were always nervous about potential confusion with that that film, Mother. I don't know if nervous is the right word. Uh, I just I think that's a very uh, natural mistake for people to make potentially. For sure. Oh, it's an easy mistake. Very American centrism, but you know, <laughs> this is the first Drew pick in a little bit. Yeah. Well, we didn't call it out last week, and I feel like we should have, but uh, you were on a three-in-a-row streak there. You almost matched my four-in-a-row. See? I I had a feeling. I can't remember when I... I mean, it was... I've had a hard road to hoe to even just start inching my way back to close to 500. But um, that three-in-a-row is definitely a good start. And then we had this kind of... Unfortunately, we had to watch this movie Mother, which was a Drew pick this Poor week. us. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I've I've liked having the little bit of a hot streak. It feels good to have some of my choices hit, but also was was happy to kind of have a Drew pick this week. You know, there is a little bit of pressure in watching one of, uh, you know, my choices, especially since like last week. Why do you say that? Well, just thinking like, you know, it's funny in our intro episode, we talked about you know, that pressure of picking a movie and a party or whatever, and how this just gets rid of all of it. There still is a little, like, kind of filament of that remaining, where it's like, uh, oh, I, I put this movie on the board. This is kind of my choice, you know? And and most of that is positive. But, like, you know, we have a movie kind of like last week, which you had a, kind of some serious issues with, and they were justified for sure. And it's like, I kind of was like, oh, that was one of my choices. Is that a little bit of a miss? I don't know. So some of that pressure still remains. I and picked it was Mulan. Kind of, Rouge, which you are quoted as saying potentially your least favorite movie of all time. That's yeah, true. I mean, I'm, I'm again happy to be on a bit of a comeback, but also happy that this was a Drew week and kind of mixing it up for things I would have chosen. You know, for sure, for sure. Yeah. It remains to be seen if anyone will will touch my four in a row from earlier this year. But <sighs> it was close. One off. I was close. You almost there. Well, as we said uh, tonight, we are covering Mother. Uh, but I think before we get into that movie, we want to do a little mea culpa. And maybe this is just yeah. going to become a segment going forward because we definitely say some dumb shit sometimes. And uh, the following <laughs> week, we we sometimes feel the yeah. need to make a correction. And I think tonight yeah. uh, you said you, you had something you wanted to, to go back to. Yeah, th- this may or may not be a recurring segment. Uh, but a lot of times, like Drew's saying, we make mistakes or we sometimes we just forget to mention something that we really wanted to touch on. This mea culpa for tonight from last week's episode, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, was just one funny thing I noticed in the film. I really wanted to mention it, and I don't think I did. Do you remember that scene where Cable Hogue is walking into the brothel for the first time, and there's like music playing? 
and there's a shot showing the band playing on stage. Do you remember that loosely? I don't know. Last weekend is kind of a blur for me, quite honestly. Yeah, it was a weird. It was a strange episode. I, think. I was uh, I was in a weird headspace, and yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I gave that movie a fully uh, fair shake, and I kind of feel bad about that. No, you're fine. That's my. Uh, hey, we're in the we're in the, the we're, we're in the main culpa section. We're allowed to <laughs> uh, be vulnerable. Yeah, um, and this goes back to kind of this being our only Peck and Paw movie we've ever seen. I didn't know anything about his style. So there's a shot where there's dancers on this little stage, kind of like, you know, kind of risque dancers for that time. And there's someone on piano. And that's all you see really on stage. And there's like an MC. But the music that's playing is like a banjo, a guitar, a horn. All of this stuff is not seen anywhere on the stage. You only the only musician you see is a is a pianist, and it looks to be the entire stage. So, like watching this, and I'm like, am I taking crazy pills? Like, what? There's none of these. <laughs> this music is not at all matching what they're Completely showing us. Completely non-diegetic. Yeah, it was just and, but again, this is right on the heels of that scene where the face comes on the money. Okay. So I didn't know. We're in an absurdist area at that point. Exactly. I was like, I don't know if Sam Peckinpah is like a surreal filmmaker or like what type of filmmaker he is because it's the only experience. And so I was just like, is that is was that on purpose? Do they purposefully shoot like this this setup that's not matching the music to make us feel disjointed? I've I've come down on. I think it was a mistake. I think the music was chosen after. And I guess the movie did go overshoot by a lot due to like weather concerns and things like that. I think gotcha. the set was a bit of a shit show in that way. Um, uh, sounds like a lot of it was kind of out of their hands, but just thought I, I forgot to mention that how bizarre that was seeing the music that did not match what was being performed. Well, it, it also plays into my favorite part of that episode, which is uh, you thinking that that's kind of who Peck and Paul was and then realizing who he actually was from his like actual <laughs> filmography, which is yeah. fucking dark. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of <laughs> this legendary kind of difficult asshole who just makes kind of really dark movies normally. <laughs> I just had no idea. And no here idea. he is. Uh, yeah. yeah. Making, making a smiley face on a dollar bill. Anyway, that, We'll do it for this week's mea culpa. <laughs> mea culpa section. Okay. So yeah, let's get into kind of the movie at hand, Mother Tonight. So this is a 2008 film by the great Bong Joon-ho. The great. The great Bong Joon-ho. So I guess I'll start off with kind of the traditional question, Drew. How did this movie get on the board? How did you hear about it? How did you find your way to Bong Joon-ho? It's a good question. Uh, so Bong Joon-ho, the first time I ever ha- watched one of his films was actually Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. That movie came out in 2013, I, I want to say. And uh, at that point, I think it was like spring 2013. And it's actually weird that you weren't at... The, did you go to see that with me and my brother in Lancaster? I did not. I okay. did not. Well, this was around the time that you were like in Lancaster with me. So I, I, it's right. weird that you you weren't there. Maybe, I don't know, you must have been home or something for that weekend. But we, me and my brother went and saw Snowpiercer at the Zoetrope. And uh, it was really fun. I had a great time with that movie. I, I don't love that movie as much uh, as I did the first time I saw it. At. Like it I, I've watched it again and it doesn't hold up as well for me, but... Um, it's my least favorite of his films, but that's saying 
not much at all because yeah. his films are incredible. I think after that, I saw Okja, which was his Netflix film. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was kind of okay on that. So I, I wasn't like totally sold on Bong Joon-ho at that point. That, that That's my other kind of like lower tier Bong Joon-ho, even though I, I really do enjoy that movie a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't hit the same notes as some of his other stuff because when I saw Parasite in theaters, that blew my mind. And I was mm-hmm. like, holy shit, this mm-hmm. is a real freaking filmmaker. And from there, I dug back into his older stuff and uh, Memories of Murder is now one of my all-time favorite films. That mm-hmm. movie is absolutely incredible. I own it on on the Criterion disc. I pre-ordered it when I saw it was getting released on Criterion because I was just like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Um, I, I think that's one of the best crime epics of all time. I put that up there with the fucking Godfather. Like it's mm. it's like that good. Um, I mean, it's it you know very different gangster crime, but you get what I'm saying. Like it's For like sure. it's top tier filmmaking, and yeah, uh, Mother is just one that I I had not gotten to yet. I realized that I had said on the previous episode that this was going to be my last Bong Joon Ho film. Uh, that I hadn't seen. That's not actually true. I completely forgot that barking dogs never bite exists. And I have not seen that. (laughs) I had such a similar reaction today where I was walking uh, like down the street and I was thinking, and I was like, Oh shit, neither drew or I mentioned memories of murder as a great debut film. When we were talking about bound and we were talking about other great debuts films. And then I get online and I look and I'm like, Oh shit, it wasn't, it wasn't a debut film. Thank God we didn't squawk about it (laughs) because it would have been way off, but it's kind of exciting. We have, cause I also haven't seen barking dogs never bite. And it's now we've got this cool gem to explore someday down the line, whether it's on the board or on our own just exciting it's like oh good i've got another 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 thing of his to check out and then also i guess there's this other film tokyo that he co-directed alongside two other directors yeah i don't think people like consider that part of his filmography really but yeah yeah i mean i could have looked a little more into it but i was intrigued and i was like okay i don't want to spoil too much so no i that could it's a um it's it's an anthology movie by a gotcha. lot of directors. Uh, so That's Leos Carax, uh, Michelle Gondry, and Bong Joon-ho all did uh, segments of that movie. Gotcha. So it's like a vignette sort of deal. Exactly. Everyone's doing their separate thing. Yeah. So I mean, like, it, yes, it is a part of his works, but I would categorize that along with like short films. I wouldn't put that yeah. part of his feature film. No, I think that's well said. Memories of Murder is the movie that really put him on the map. Mm. Uh, and this is the the follow-up to the host actually it was in between those two and Mm. i i think the host is one of the best monster movies ever i fucking love the host Mm. he is so fantastic he's such a great filmmaker i had a very similar kind of approach as you did i saw snowpiercer on netflix when it when it came there i think maybe 2014 or something and i didn't know anything about it i just was like typical Netflix thing, saw the logo. I was like, oh, I'll check it out. And really liked it. Liked it a lot. I think it's a really cool movie, really Conceptually, it's a fascinating movie. Yeah, and just the whole like kind of class structure through the cars I love and the whole kind of revolutionary aspect to it. The Ed Harris character in that film is amazing. Like a lot of great actors in it. We should say it's his only entirely English language film. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess not entirely because uh, Song Kang Ho is in it and he has uh, some, you know, Korean language lines as well. Right. But it's it's primarily led by an American and British cast. Yeah. And it's just a really, really cool movie. So I saw that, but it sounds like we had a, a same thing here where I enjoyed it, but it didn't make me want to be like, I got to see everything this person's made. And I don't even think I really ingested his name kind of at the credits. I was like, this is a really fucking cool movie. Nice. Moving on with my life. And then I completely missed Okja somehow. Uh, I still haven't seen that. That's one I'll probably watch on my own someday. I'm excited to check it out. And then I think like a lot of us, I saw Parasite and was floored. And that movie, when I saw it, had a ton of hype behind it. And it lived up to it. And I went into it blind. I had no idea what it was about. And it was such an amazing kind of cinematic experience of just rolling with something and having no idea where it's going. So then I went home and I was like, I got to see everything this guy's done. That movie's remarkable. Did you know so when I, you saw Parasite that it was the same guy who had done Snowpiercer? I can't remember. I think I think it was... I think it was I found out after. I think I Googled and I was like, oh, Snowpiercer. I really dug that. And then and then the others I was unfamiliar with. Gotcha. So then I went back and watched Memories of Murder, Mother, and The Host. So I had seen Mother before. This was my second viewing for this episode. But this was maybe, you know, this is when Parasite came out. 2019, I want to say. Something like that. 2018. 2019. 2019, yeah. So, um, for those who are listening to this and don't know for some reason, uh, Parasite won Best Picture that year. It was incredible. It, it, it was on uh, one of the biggest awards runs ever. So, yeah, one of the best of the decade. Great moment for cinematic history, too, because it was the first ever non English film to win Best Picture at the, at the Oscars, which is kind of, kind of silly it's taken that long, but really cool that it finally happened and a movie that really deserved it. That's what I was just going to say. It's like, it, it's really, it makes you feel good that the one that won it, won it because it legitimately was the best movie that year. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. one of the few times that I feel like the Oscars completely fucking nailed it. It's just so, so good. If anyone hasn't seen it, definitely check it out. It's, it's incredible. Um, but all of his movies are incredible. And I remember thinking that there's one that I, I'm not a huge fan of. I don't really I don't really get the host. I can't really get in that movie's gear and I kind of was like this is okay. Fair and enough. just to see how much it was beloved I was like what's going on? But the guy never makes really like a bad movie. Like he's on like kind of six in a row, all like really really strong of the ones I've seen anyway. And even though I don't respond to the host, people adore that film. No, I I just said I think it's a masterpiece. I I love yeah. that movie. Yeah. Um I can understand. I mean, it's not it's not for everyone. I can see that. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned before that you had seen Mother previously. Mm -hmm. When did you see Mother for the first time? So it was kind of in my kind of wake and deluge of I got to see. I got to see it all. Got to see it all. And I fell in love with this movie. Only saw it that once, but was like, I think this is my favorite of his. And I think it was the third I had seen. I think it went. I think I went chron chronologically. I think wow. it went memories, host, and then mother. And even when considering Parasite, I was like, I think this is my favorite that I've seen. What was it that you latched onto? Just uh, the beauty of the cinematography, the 
very unpredictable nature of the story, which is also very true for all of his movies, pretty much, and especially Parasite. Um, you want to talk a master of subversion? Yes, for sure. And he and it just something about it was so tragic and heartbreaking and haunting that it kind of just it stuck with me on a level even beyond the others. I mean, there's stuff in memories of murder. There's shots. There's moments that are incredibly haunting. They stick with me, too. There's stuff in Parasite that I feel that way about as well. But something about this film as a full cohesive piece really kind of latched on to me. And, like, I don't want to say bothered me, but really affected me. And I was like, that is just an incredible film. I don't know. I have to see a lot of his other stuff a second time to see if I still feel like Mother is my favorite of all of them. Um, but I just loved it then and was very excited that we hit it and was super excited to revisit it. So let me ask you, you had not seen this. How did you feel about this film? I loved it. This movie rules. For me, I need to sit with this a while longer to decide exactly where it sits. I think for me right now, I prefer Parasite and memories of murder to this, but I think this might be number three right now. Oh, man, uh, dude, it's it's so cool. We get in these great filmmakers. I I love it. But number three, that's high praise. It is. Uh, in that filmography, it means a fucking lot to be number For three. For sure. So yeah, I no, I I had a blast with this movie. I. Um, I think I gained a lot more appreciation for it on the second viewing because mm-hmm. I realized how how much of the buildup to the the twists is baked into the movie early on. In this movie, you don't feel any of the strings being pulled. Mm-hmm. And the movie is a completely different viewing experience on second viewing. It's almost like an even better version of the sixth sense for me in that way, mm-hmm. where it's like you rewatch it and you see all the the setup to the twist. In this movie, it's not as much like blatant setup where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. like that's a ghost, clearly. Like, you know, it's not that. It's more like emotional manipulation of the movie that mm-hmm. you start to understand, like you realize that you've been watching the movie from one perspective and that it's a, a an inherently untrustworthy perspective mm-hmm. and that that has been making you believe things and, and support things that make no logical sense in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, we, we, we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit more later. Um, or do we want to talk about it now? I don't I know. Let's just do it now. I Let's think talk about it. it now. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, Dude. what was your viewing on, like, second viewing? Because for me, I, I like, the first viewing was a mind fuck because, like, mm-hmm. I, sorry, I, I asked you a question I didn't let you answer, but I, I do want to, like, preface it with this. When I watched the movie the first time, I was on an emotional roller coaster where I was like, you got to like, go solve this mystery. Like, fuck mm-hmm. yes, this is awesome. Like, like I love that this woman is like taking this initiative and she's like being like, you know, the unconditional love mother, like, like doing anything for her son. Like I, I like it was inherently just like gripping, you know, to watch mm-hmm. this woman, like take the reins of the story that way. And it takes you on this emotional journey where it then completely sweeps out the rug from under you when you find out that she's been fighting for the wrong thing the whole time and Mm. he is guilty. Mm. And 
she goes so far as to murder the only evidence to confirm that, to -hmm. protect this son. And it immediately challenges all of your morality from, from the beginning of the movie to that point. And it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a, a wrecking ball of a twist and I loved it on first viewing just on the visceral, like, holy shit level. Mm-hmm. But then going back to rewatch it, and then you're watching it with the knowledge that that's coming, suddenly all of her decisions are just like, no, oh, fuck, like, this is awful. Like, no, mm-hmm. don't do that. Like, let him go to the mental hospital, like, shit like that. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, man, I don't yeah. know. What was, your fe- what was your feeling on second viewing like that? Dude, I, I, I love what you said about how it's a totally different experience the second time. I think, too, I'm just going to say before I launch into it, that it's it is it's funny. You said the word twist, and I was like, is it a twist, though? And I was like, oh, it absolutely is. But it's kind of like a hidden twist. It's more of just like an unexpected turn that flips the whole movie on its ear, which is a twist. But it's funny, I didn't view it as a twist in some sort of strange way. You know, this is maybe a little semantic-y. But, but well, what, yeah. I guess, how do, you, how do you mean? Like, what, what is, um, did, what did you see it as if you didn't see it as a twist? I don't know. I guess, I guess just an unexpected turn. But when I think about what a quote-unquote twist means, it means there is an extreme change in the story that flips the whole movie on its head. And that it makes and you reconsider everything. Exactly. And a, a classic example would be something like Fight Club. Sure. That has yeah. a complete twist ending that makes you view this story a totally different way. Yep. And so then as we're talking about it, I'm like, oh, then this kind of fits into that category. It's a completely kind of like maneuver that just turns the whole movie around and then on first viewing, you kind of sit in this rubble for like the last 20 minutes of the film that is just brutal. And, and they're just like emotionally like just pl- blow after blow and really effective. But then when you go back and see the movie for the second time, it's, it's, it's interesting because in that first viewing, you're kind of you become a mother. You, you, as, as viewers first time, we're like, he couldn't have done it. He didn't do it. He admits to shit he didn't do all the time. We saw that with the mirror thing on the bends, like when he didn't even kick the mirror and he got blamed for it. So we get kind of warpingly pulled into her perception and agreeing with it completely of like, uh, he couldn't have done it. We saw him walk away from the thrown stone. He threw the golf ball earlier in the scene. That's why it's around there. Blah, blah, blah. And like we kind of just get like we, so you're right. We're championing mother when she's kind of running out there and, and on the case and we're like he couldn't have done it he couldn't have done it and then when we are hit with that twist it is just so like oh my god he did it and it just gets worse and worse after that um and you're right the second viewing is so fun not even not fun but it's so it just totally changes the film yeah no it's incredible and and it's it's to the point where the second time I watched it, I started having a reaction of like, I see where this this son may have inherited some like mental disabilities in some way. I, I, like she she is like making logical jumps that are like some like disconnected from reality on some yeah. level. Well, it's um, just you know it's just out of love, you know, and so she's just like so in love that she's just kind of doing. 
irrational almost, things. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a mother's love is a form of mental illness in a way. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. This movie definitely explores those ideas in a very, very interesting way. But yeah, a total, total for me anyway, an emotional gut punch of a film. And it's just really, really special. And even though it is heavy and emotional and dark and haunting, there's also comedic bit kind of bits kind of sprinkled throughout the movie does such a good job at kind of like you know shifting gears and i think it's primarily a uh you know kind of challenging experience for sure i think that's bong's greatest strength is his ability to balance tones like that where like Mm -hmm. the comedy the terror it all fits together yes absolutely i mean that's one of the hallmarks of parasite you know the movie's kind of starts off as this con fun con movie right. and then it just just takes all these twists and turns and has a very kind of emotional climax and ending to it and it's just like oh yeah he's so good at at playing in those with different emotions and different kind of palettes of, you know just playing with different emotions yeah and those are my favorite types of movies that are that are that go in a lot of different directions the movie's fascinating on its own, but I think the movie's even more fascinating when you kind of dig into the creation of it. Mm, um, yeah. So I want to kind of turn the conversation towards Kim Hae Ja, yeah, yeah. which she's an actor that I have never seen before. Um, I had never heard of before this movie, uh, but I, I kind of did a little bit of digging into her backstory and uh, not to be ignorant, but you know, we're all learning, right? Of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Kim Hae-ja apparently was a major television star in Korea. She was known as this mother figure. Um, she she was in a bunch of TV shows. The biggest one apparently was called Country Diaries. And she was, you know, country uh, nationwide known as like the nation's mother on television television so so think of her as kind of like a florence henderson like you know mrs brady kind of figure like that that's who she was so apparently bong joon ho was fascinated with her persona and got kind of obsessed with the idea of like taking that persona and showing the dark side of it like showing like like how difficult it is to be that mother and like like, yeah 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 he so it's this kind of this famous motherly character. And he just says, like, I, I heard that he was just like, I want to make a movie with her. Yes. And and I want to play with this trope that we're going to use this character in ways that are kind of against the grain and not in a way that would be expected. And I hadn't heard that about her history. So that was really cool to hear that she was like this this TV mom, you know. And I guess he said that the idea came to him really fast of like in like a flash of like oh this is the story this yeah is he met her in like 2004 or something and like immediately put together a script yeah and and i guess you know they, they over a couple of years they refined it and tweaked it but i think he he kind of just had a, a flash of inspiration that really kind of sets up this this great great story of like this kind of mother kind of seeking the truth and then finds it and it's not what she wants it to be. And it's, and it's just a disaster, you know, but yeah, this kind of over the top kind of helicopter, anxious mother character. 
I just fascinating, fucking no, fascinating. Yeah. It's really, it's a really cool inspiration for, for how this came about, but it's made all the better by the fact that this is one of the best performances I've ever seen. Unreal. It's so, so good. This is, this would be in, in, on the short list for kind of best of the year when we have, whenever we get to talk 100%. About, yeah, when we talk about our favorite performances from the year, like, holy hell, she's so, so good. Incredible. Like, like the range of emotions that she has to portray and the way that she can emote without making any facial expression whatsoever, like in the intro to the movie, like it's just, it's incredible, man. Like, yeah. like this is some of the best work I've ever seen. And the fact that like she was not even nominated for an Oscar that year, like this is the year that Sandra Bullock won for the blind side and no shade on fucking Sandra Bullock. Like she's great and all, but are you, are, are we serious? Yeah, that's a, we were talking about when, when the Oscars gets it right, they got it wrong that time. And again, no shade, but this is, Sandra, this is something Sandy, special. Sandy is wonderful. We all love yeah. Sandy. Three cheers for Sandra Bullock. But this is like an, this is like almost an iconic performance, you know? No, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, and again, it just, just tying back to what we were saying as far as the rewatchability of this, her performance on rewatch is just all the more incredible from the different layers that she's building into this character. Yeah. And just the, the, and you mentioned how, how much she can show just on her face, whether it's just in the eyes or the whole face is involved or whatever she shows, she displays anxiety so well, a kind of nervousness about, you know, wanting to keep her son safe. Like it just is so believable. And, but she does all sorts of rich, different emotions that that she could just portray so so well you know what this movie reminded me of a lot um we we've talked about it a few times on the show i want to say at this point but one of the early kind of test records we did was uh, park chan wook's filmography and this movie felt of a piece a lot with like uh sympathy for mr vengeance specifically was was kind of yeah. what i was getting out of this also some elements of, of Lady Vengeance as well, but that that trilogy specifically, I think, um, you know, I think this movie is in some ways playing in some of that territory, but it's also subverting that. Yeah. It leads you down the path of like expecting a Mr. Vengeance type movie and it has a similar emotional gut punch, but the gut punch is like that there is no catharsis, you know? Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. You know, it's just like, it, it's, and and Mr. Vengeance is also bleak, but it's bleak in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and this is not really so much a, a vengeancey story, but where the two uh, where the two films totally share something is like they both kind of start with like a pursuit of justice sort of thing, right? That just kind of goes off the rails. Yeah, it's almost like this is like the anti vengeance movie. It's like she doesn't get vengeance; she gets anything yeah. but. If anything, she inherits more trauma and more terrible shit. Yeah, she just inherits like misery, and and is driven to just some kind of you know some despicable action with some some terrible repercussions. And we're and we as the audience again, first viewing, we were all on her side, and we're just left to sit in this rubble with her it we're left to sit in this detritus alongside her because we were we were with her the whole time and and we are almost as let down as she is we feel culpable in a way 
Yeah, yeah, we were we were enabling this woman in a way while we're watching. Oh no, I was rooting for this. This is what yeah. I wanted. Oh no, I oh, not like these. <laughs> not like this. Yeah, it's a tale of two viewings, man. Absolutely. Yeah, and and yeah, she really is spectacular in it too. No, she's just incredible, and um, it's crazy. Like she's like. 70 or something when they made this movie she's like almost she, oh my I, I, God. I want to she say she was like, like her mid to late 60s <laughs> she looks wild. great it's yeah it's pretty impressive uh but no I, I i just wanted to make sure that we focused a lot on kim hey job because she's a legend from from this alone she is a legend really remarkable performance and one of the best we've seen on the show in quite some time. And like I said, it's probably going to be a candidate for best of the year, but I'm trying, I'm like struggling to think of what was her performance we've dug into so far that I like this much. And I'm sure there are a ton that I've just Spencer Tracy, man, he's up there for me. Spencer Tracy. That's really good. I mean, big dog, (laughs) like, you know, there's so many, so many great ones. I really liked Alan Arkin and catch 22. Well, but big dog in all the president's men, which is the one that would get Mm -hmm. nominated for me. That right. that'll be in supporting. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because this is a lead. This is a lead. If we're gonna do separate categories for actor and actress, as the the Oscars do, uh, not saying that we we're gonna do that because I think we should we also not. consider doing a should. gender neutral thing. Yeah, I, yeah, fuck it. Let's do gender neutral. But yeah, I, yeah. I think I think uh, Julia Roberts in uh, Aaron Brockovich might be up there. Yeah, she's good. Uh, that's great performance. But this was just really. This just nuked me. I, I had such a reaction to this film, and her performance is such an imperative t- piece to it. I mean, any lead character, it's important to the success of a film. But so much of it hinges on the performance, and she does such a great job. She's incredible. Yeah. And again, someone I, like you, had never really seen before. As American audiences, we're not really exposed to her. So we get this kind of ray of like revelation seeing this person of just like, holy shit. This this actor is incredible. No, it's it's great. Um, I would love to see them team up again. Yeah, me too. Me too. That that's true. Well, you put a note on here: love leading to fear. Yes. You want to you lead in on that? Yeah. Yeah. So we say it a lot, but the dartboard really does work in mysterious ways, and like the timing of some of these things are just kind of strange and unpredictable. So I have been at time of recording, actually tonight. The season finale of Barry is, and I'm going to be watching it after we're done. And I have been loving this season. It's very dark, it's, 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 but it's incredible. That show is very high quality. And I also recently discovered that Bill Hader does a podcast with The Ringer with his host, uh, I think Sean Fennessy, or I can't remember who from The Ringer. Yeah, it's Fennessy. Fennessy it's a, it's yeah. a really good show. I, Fennessy is by far the best part of The Ringer. Yeah, he's a he is a really good interviewer. He's so insightful. And he has he has great great takes. I feel like I, I really enjoy Sean Fennessy. I I totally agree. And it's not like uh, he kind of reminds me of a Sean Evans hot ones like asks surprisingly good questions because when you like people like you and I get obsessed with these shows these movies we love seeing interviews and it's so brutal to sit through someone asking just stupid questions it's like oh man I just really and that must I can't imagine what it's like to be answering those questions all day like just bad questions but Sean Fantasy asks really good ones anyway so I've been into Barry been following along with the podcast listening to the behind the scenes stuff and Bill Hader talked about a story from his life that he 
has mentioned other parents. They share a lot. And it's a theme that's kind of been built into this season of Barry, which is like when you first kind of fall in love with your kid, like at birth or whatever, and you're just like, I love this thing. Like what kind of follows that is you get nervous about what you might be driven to to either protect it or avenge it. Like the, the fear, there's a little bit of fear that could come in there of like, I would do, I would burn a city to the ground to protect this, this thing, you know? And, you know, the other kind of part of you is like, well, seriously, like, you know, what's a, what's a reasonable thing to do here, you know? So it's just interesting timing that I've been watching these sort of themes play out of like parents either trying to protect or avenge loved ones. And then Bill Hader has been talking a lot about this stuff. And then we just see this movie that explores this idea of like how love can drive you to fear and and to pushing you into things. Um, I've never seen this sort of theme explored so well. Tons of movies out there that you and I have never seen. I'm sure it's tackled in great ways in other places. But I've never seen it done so beautifully, including Barry, a show that I adore. Uh, But it's just such it's such a frightening and beautiful exploration of this idea of like you know what what like what true true deep love can drive you to do and how that when you catch yourself it's like oh this is that's frightening that's <laughs> a yeah. frightening thought and it's just uh it's no just, i think that's beautifully said man i like yeah. i think like the movie really explores what true unconditional love means mm-hmm yeah, and it's of course one of one of the most beautiful elements of being alive, but there is this sort of kind of frightening side to it. No, it's terrifying. Know? Yeah, I mean like yeah, yeah. when you give give yourself over fully to something like that, um mm-hmm. that that is a really like terrifying thought at, you know, when you yeah. extrapolate it to its like ultimate extreme. Yeah, um, and it and it explores that even before, you know, the mother character starts making really tragic choices towards the end of the film. We see it kind of propelling her anxiety just in the beginning. She's always worried about him. She's always nervous. And, like, yeah. uh, you know, and Bong Joon-ho, I saw in like a clip of an interview was talking about his mother and he was like, you know, my mother, like a lot of mothers are, you know, is very worried about her children and concerned and, and thinking about them a lot. So you, you kind of see that, that love that propels into this anxiety in this character and it's uh and it's just woven through the whole fucking thing and it's just uh it's it's just beautiful <laughs> beautiful no. upsetting story yeah it's it's beautiful and um it's it's at the same time terrifying because of like what people are willing to do to preserve that and, and yeah. protect that yeah. um it's it's the most primal we get as human beings is that that feeling of of you know, love to a violent extent, you know, yeah. it's, it's that crazy. might be, that white might be one of the ways that we clawed our way to the top was just that extreme sense of love driving to extreme protection. You know, maybe we, we share that over other species. I doubt it. I mean, we see love, you know, amplified in other ways with, with other you know species, but still it's just, it's just, it's cool. I love what you're saying. So we mentioned Kim Haja. I mean, unbelievable performance. Uh, but there were a couple others that really kind of popped for me as well. And I would say like a very close second to just like a, a performance that just blew me away and I loved. I mean, there's no need to rank them. They're all great. Uh, 
But Jin Gu, who plays Jin Tae, he was fantastic in this movie. I was going to highlight him as well. He's He brings a really crazy amount of gravitas. I don't know how this yeah. guy hasn't gotten more big work because he's yeah. like, he, he's got like a, a swagger to him that I can't yeah. totally pinpoint, but dude, great I was getting energy. almost like, you know, to look at it from American perspective, almost like Brad Pitt sort of vibes. Like he's got this sort of like, he's super handsome. He's got great charisma, he's great cool. energy. Cool. Yeah. He's just fucking cool. From the moment we see him, he's just the coolest guy. And so the performance I, also terrifying. Also what? Also terrifying, yes. Which we'll get into kind of favorite scenes and stuff later. But in terms of the performance, I really enjoyed the arc and the direction. I don't like the word arc, by the way. I don't like character arcs. I li- it's so. Do you want to give it a new name? I, I think it should just be direction. Because it's uh, arcs just seems like we're all following established story time princi- like, you know, storytelling principles. Dan Harmon would argue that all characters do. Yeah, I mean, they. but the word arc just makes it, te- I don't know. I'm not into it. Not into it. Um, Jared it, is is anti-Campbell over here. Wait, wait, a hero with a thousand faces. You're not familiar with him? I don't think so. He's like a philosopher, but on storytelling. It's really, he's an oh. interesting person. Okay, I um, got you. Yeah, yeah. The hero with a thousand faces. So like Star Wars is a Joseph Campbell story. Uh, like the hero's journey, that's Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell. Got you, got you, yeah. And I, I like movies like that, but I don't like the idea of storytelling being kind of poured in concrete so so rigidly. I really want you. I want to send you a bunch of links on the Story Circle by Dan Harmon. You would be yeah, fascinated you, by it. We, I've you, brought it up in the past. Yeah, yeah. I've, I and I love hearing creative people talking about how they create and how they write. So I like that Bill Hader podcast, the Ringer one. But I love the direction his character takes in this movie. So we see in that first scene with him and Wan Bin, who's the actor who plays Yoon Do Jun. Apologies if that pronunciation is not good. But we see that first scene with them together, the kicked mirror and the fallout from all that. And he just sells him down the river and says he kicked the mirror and all this stuff. So we're introduced to him like, oh, this guy's an asshole. He is kind of an opportunist dick. Yeah, and we and we once again we see it through the mother's eyes when she's like he's a bad seed, like he's a bad influence. Because yeah, he kinda is a little. Like he 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 really sold him out. And then later on in the film, he just takes this twist of really becoming an ally and getting involved in the investigation. And and But isn't really, that also just opportunism? I mean, maybe, but other than, the, I guess, the five grand, is that what it you mean? It takes a lot of money. He does, but the five grand was like about her bringing him to the station. I don't think he takes any money from her after that, if I'm not mistaken. Because he, he says, because she does the whole thing with the golf club. Oh, so you're saying like she's paying him back for his fees for being brought in or something? Wait, I, don't, I don't know, I don't but, know he, but when he you're... confronts her in her house about that, about right. how, yeah, he's like, what what word does no, but he he's, use? He, settlement. He, he's he getting settlement. I don't remember exactly how that works out. Maybe yeah. I'm, I could have that wrong. I took it as he was taking a fee for working the case for oh. her. See, I took it as like, you owe me money for. I don't think he was like accosting her for money in that scene. Interesting. Well, that, yeah, that takes a completely different 
look at it. Yeah. The second time I watched it by this point in the movie, I was kind of doing other things and taking notes and stuff. So mm-hmm. I wasn't totally focused and I may have missed this part. Yeah. Uh, We've got a candidate for Maya Copa next week. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Regardless how this shakes two. out, we can fix it. The way I read it was that he was like just going there to confront her on like a personal basis and saying, Hey, I care about this kid too. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, okay, well like, what do you like? I, I don't know. I may. Yeah. No, I don't know. No, I think, I think it's like, I, I, I'm going to be really embarrassed paper, if I have this completely wrong and you're going to no, have to pa- edit me very carefully. So <laughs> on paper, <laughs> that makes more sense than my read, but I just read it as like, um, Oh, I think uh, he's demanding settlement for, I guess, being hassled by the police. But five grand is a lot. So now that we're hashing through it, I'm like, oh, shit, maybe Drew's but right. But she definitely, well, it, maybe it's a mix of both of our takes. Yeah, yeah. I, that That's probably what the right answer is, is that he's yeah. like getting the settlement. But he's also saying, all right, then also pay me to like help you investigate yeah. this thing. Yeah, we'll do. We'll, we'll revisit the scene ourselves and we'll kind of cut tongue back and maybe touch on it again next week or something. But regardless of whichever one of those interpretations is correct i agree with you that he is opportunistic but he really does contribute he does really seem to care for dojun like like he he demonstrates that consistently and just based on what we'd seen in the beginning that was unexpected on first viewing and and that's what i like about it and the performance is fucking great too no i think he's he's perfectly menacing when he needs to be you also buy that he could either be an opportunistic like piece of shit or that he's actually a guy who cares about this person. Like you can read all of that in the performance. Um, one thing that I found interesting on the second viewing that I w- wanted to ask you, do you think that he threw that golf club into the water so that he could go back and get it? Or do you think he threw it in the water because he knew that Dojun had violent tendencies and might like use oh. that to kill them. Cause okay. I was thinking maybe it had that read. That's a really cool read. I didn't get that at all. And even I, even when you brought up the subject, I didn't see it going there. It's like shit, maybe, but had we ever seen him be violent before in the film? No, but in, you do in the police station afterwards when oh, the guy right. calls him the R word and he right, lunges right. across and and attacks him. That's right. So you, ah, I, I'm gonna listen. Which I'm gonna also watch then scene. happens in the the prison yard as well. Yeah. So it's like that is his trigger. Yeah, I think that's another Copacabana possible. Sector. Which one? Just that, that I want to revisit that scene too, and I want to talk about it next week. There might not be anything to suggest that that might all be in my head, but I I watched the movie two times within like you know sixteen hours of each other basically because I watched it last night and this morning. Um, so that might just be like residual. Like I like it though, I fucking like it. And that shot, let's just say that shot where they confront the golfers. And they're fighting in the sand trap, and he throws the club. That's a just a great shot from a technical standpoint. Yeah, where it's like you know, it's a tracking shot, lot going on. They do this confrontation. There's some kind of light, but you know, you got to pull them off. Stunts involved, and then it's all in one shot when before he, I mean, even through him throwing the club, and the club lands like the perfect spot in the water for him to potentially to go get it later. It doesn't chuck it super far, but it makes the water. Right. So that's kind of a tricky thing I to ask an actor to do. that's probably what the read is, like that he's yeah. like leaving it to go get it again. But 
Yeah, because and that's that's one question I have and makes me want to see it again is is he intentionally stashing it there for later, or is he smart enough to just remember that they went there and he can go get it later? You know, so there's a lot to we can unpack from that scene upon rewatch. Yeah. Tied into that, I mean, I, I kind of just want to talk about some favorite scenes right now. For sure, um, for sure. Let's do I it. Want, off the back of talking about uh, Jin Gu playing Jin Tai, um, when Mother sneaks into Jin Tai's house, finds the golf club with what you think is blood on it at the time, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and gets stuck in the closet when when he comes home with um, the girl that he's seeing, the younger girl, which is, he, that's the other thing about Jin Tai. Jin Tai also is fucking around with like some really young, questionably young girls. Yeah. Uh, he's a bit of a creeper in general. Yeah, yeah. But, well, uh, we don't know his age. Like, it's true. I, don't know. I read him as being kind of early to mid 20s, but. Yeah, he looks like 23, 24, but he might supposed to be like, Maybe like a year or two ahead of them or something. I, I I'm not know. sure. I mean, he yeah. does have his own house, or he li- seems to live alone anyway. Either way, the two girls that we know that he is having a relationship with, potentially sexual in both, definitely sexual in one, those girls are coded as being really fucking young because we yeah, yeah. meet their mother and like, you know, the families and they're in schoolgirl outfits. And, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's. I think it's meant to be read as he's a little bit of a creep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that that scene where mother sneaks in, finds the golf club, and then has to sneak out while they're, you know, asleep after having sex, is so fucking brilliantly staged. Oh my god! The sneaking out portion specifically, when yes. she knocks over the water bottle, my heart skipped a beat. Then he levels it up even further because the water starts creeping towards Jin Tai's outstretched hand, which will wake him up. And at this point you think he's the killer. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found again, going back to like rewatch and like watching in a completely different context, what I noticed was on first viewing, when you start to see the water creeping towards his hand, you have the reaction of like, get the fuck out of there, mother. Like, go, yeah. like, move, yeah. get, move your fucking ass. <laughs> and she's not moving. And you're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you staying there? On second viewing, my read was, oh, fuck. If he had woken up, she was ready to knock him the fuck out with that golf oh, club. Oh, shit. Because she has oh, that yeah. in her to protect at all costs at this mm-hmm. point. And we don't know that till the end on first viewing. But knowing she has that ability, I was like, she is holding that golf club in such a way, she's like, I will knock this fucker out. If I have to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. When I saw it, I was just hung up on how much I was just loving, like, the water bottle and beer can obstacle course. Yeah, it's that she had to just kind of get through. And I love the beauty of the shot of the water spilling and the intensity of it slowly getting close to the fingers. On so on, tense, man. It's just so good. So I was all kind of hung up in that world. But you're right. Now that you're saying it, I, I could see that read of like, oh, she might have just clubbed him if he woke up. Woke up, you know. Yeah, we don't know. It's certainly um, possible for her to do that. Certainly possible. Another one I really wanted to highlight, again, going back to our kind of Park Chan-wook connection, 
I found it really interesting. Uh, first of all, I didn't realize it was a thing, I guess, in Korean police and and news culture to have a reenactment of the crime by the the potential uh you know killer but this is the second time we've seen this because this also happens in lady vengeance if you remember that oh shit i I don't remember and she also has the white face mask on like to protect identity i guess um Mm. it's really interesting that they do like that i guess that must be a thing in south korea yeah, yeah, I guess so. I just thought it was a bit of a of a surreal moment, not knowing culture and having forgotten the lady vengeance. Because no, yeah, she does the choke out like on the kid in in like the the early part of Lady Vengeance. Oh wow! Oh shit! Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, um, yeah, that is that is interesting. Anyway, I wanted to highlight that, but actually, what I also wanted to talk about was earlier than that. The interrogation scene, it, it's really interesting to me that Bong Joon-ho uh, is really focused on, in Memories of Murder and in Mother, police brutality as a way to get confessions and, and um, you know, clear up cases and, in, in, you know, in a way that, like, they can wipe their hands clean of it. He brings this up specifically in both movies and, you know, in, in Memories of Murder, it's the guy who's like, you know, beating people up. And in this movie, it's the apple, you know, like threatening to kick it out, you know, his basically kill him with a kick to his head. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's really interesting. It must've been like a, a really like hot button issue or something at the time. Uh, yeah. Based on or the just important to, to him. Like, yeah. And we see some of that. We see a lot of that stuff in the American legal system too, of people getting duped into confessions or, or just, we, you know, and like the idea of, the police as a force being so driven uh, for statistics, you know, things like the wire explore that so well. And, and even things like the departed a little bit talk about like, let's just get this in the file. Let's get it closed and move on to the next one. You know, cause that's just like kind of the rhythm of these kind of bureaucracies of these things. And people can just kind of get ground up in, and of course this doesn't, they end up being right, of course, but, um, it is. It does seem to be something that's important to him as a yeah. filmmaker to explore the idea of like coerced confessions or explore like the idea of the strategies that are used to to just close the case and move on to the next. Yeah. Um, about this time in the movie, I also I, I failed to mention it when we were talking about Kim Hae but maybe my favorite part of her performance is when she's handing out flyers. It is so heartbreaking where she's like the the guy is about to throw it in the trash and she's like, please, sir, like don't throw that in the trash. Like read read, it, read it first, read it carefully first yeah. and then throw it away. Yeah. I was like, my soul was crushed on, on yeah. first viewing. Oh, it's such a fucking sad movie too. Oh. <laughs> it really is. And I think second... Second viewing is just the gloomier one for sure, because the first time we're kind of cheering for and we don't know what's going. We don't know where it's going. We don't know what's going on. So we're just kind of trying to piece the mystery together. We're along for the ride. And the second one, you just feel the dread the whole fucking time. Well, uh, I will say, despite the amount of dread in this movie, it does have moments of levity. Mm -hmm. Specifically, the lawyer cracked me up. (laughs) Yeah. 
the lawyer the, is just drinking like sake bombs or something you're like introduced that. to the lawyer in the buffet where he <laughs> is explaining that he eats the food on the go as he's adding it to his plate because it saves time between him going back to the table eating and yeah, coming back to get refills he just eats on the go i actually saw a really funny uh review on letterboxd where the guy was like uh, I've I've actually leveled this up. I just eat straight out of the serving trays. <laughs> That's funny. But anyway, I love I love that he's like the most efficient lawyer ever to the point where when he's leaving the prison after the first meeting, uh, you know, where he he's like she's trying to get him to to uh, get her son to explain the the story. Um the, when the lawyer is leaving, he's taking such a direct path. He doesn't have to, but he's walking in such a straight line and he makes like a grunt and a gesture to make this woman move her legs out of the way so he can continue in such a straight line instead of curving around her leg. It's like the most efficient A to B path of all time. And it's like, that is the most, the funniest, subtle character building I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, and the way he just so abruptly leaves that first prison conversation, yeah, where he's just like, "All right, goodbye." No, I'll call you, and he just leaves because I the first time, first viewing, it's just like, "Oh, is this guy just a hack at like asshole?" And he he doesn't know what he's doing, or is he just thinking this case is not going to work? But what it probably is in reality is like. I've got all the information I need to proceed. I'm leaving now. It's probably really what he's doing. Because <laughs> he turns out to be a good lawyer, surprisingly. Yeah. I mean, she claims that he's the best in the county and all that, but we don't get any inkling that he's any good at any point. Well, and that's the thing. Like like I was saying earlier on the second viewing, when you, when you are in that karaoke bar scene with the two mm-hmm. passed out drunk lawyers with him, mm-hmm. when he's describing the settlement that he's gotten for them, it's actually great in hindsight. It's an unbelievable deal. I think if she could go back to that moment in time, she would accept the deal because it's four years and you don't have someone else falsely imprisoned. Like, I wonder yeah. if that's the case. I wonder if she would do that or not. But uh, yeah. you know, I think the optimistic view is that she would. Yeah, and knowing, like you're saying, as we know, like that is an incredible deal. For what actually transpired. For if how really mentally that ill that, that child is, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he obviously, if that potential offer was true, turns out to be a really good lawyer. Yeah. Surprisingly drunk at a karaoke bar, like, passing around shots and stuff, and he's still holding it down. And then when, he, when she comes to the office to confront him, or just to see him, and he just fucking leaves and the associate like grabs her takes her for a cup of tea that scene is really funny and (laughs) it's just really really so you're right this comedy sprinkled all over this movie yeah what what scenes did you want to highlight there was one scene towards the end of the film that i just saw and was like this is just one this is just a proof of like how good a fucking scene can be when everything comes together in a scene and it just blew me away. And it's a really quick scene. But, I mean, it involves the setup to the scene is the interrogation in the – so you mentioned you said it was a Ferris wheel. What is that thing? I think so. It, it looks like they yeah. were kind of – instead of open canopy kind of what, – what would you call yeah. that? Uh, yeah, I was the, struggling the to find the cars that they're in. 
Um, yeah. They looked like kind of caged in cars. Maybe it's like a fast yeah. paced Ferris wheel or something. Like yeah, it's what more I, of an adventure. What ride, I read but. it as is like, you know, in theme parks, they would have those like almost like um, ski chairs, but they're like little bubbles that hold people and they kind of zip over the park at a slow speed, like 30 feet in the air. You know, it's just like a cable car, maybe. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was maybe one of those, like one of those sort of cable car. You take it to the top of the mountain. Either way, there's two cars sitting in the station. Yeah, there he's he does that interrogation where he's isolating them, the two people who were hassling that friend of the woman who of the girl who was killed, and they interrogate them both in the separate vessels. And first of all, I just love the shot of those doors slamming. It's just like camera on the door slamming in. And he again, always had, finds the most interesting way to shoot everything. Oh, yeah. And it was like, you know me, I tend to not like over flourishy stuff, but I fucking loved it. So but it's perfect. not flashy. It's just yeah. it's just all feels organic to how he's telling the story. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the interrogation scene happens. There's that amazing bit where he's remember slash imagining her in his lap and the conversation they had about the cell phone. The way he edits she, that. The way he edits that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's super cool. Like, have her in his lap and memory there in this pod or whatever they're fucking in, you know? So I was like, love that. And then specifically what floored me was the scene where he kicks his teeth, his tooth out. Specifically talking to the combination of, again, shots, editing, performance, rhythm music like sound effect everything comes together in that sequence and like that's just perfect so it starts with when Jin Tai takes the initial lunge it starts in kind of close like his his shoulders are kind of at the edges of the frame a medium I guess you might call it and then as the lunge happens it seamlessly cuts to a wide from behind point of view behind the person who gets kicked the person gets kicked his head flies back in that same wide shot and hits the glass behind him and then dr- drops down right in sequence when his head's dropping down. It cuts to a profile shot from the side, perfectly in rhythm with his head falling. And his, his, the blood pours out. And then from there, it cuts to the mother hearing this on the phone, like hearing the interrogation of what happens. Because the, the, the kick really came from the person who was being interrogated kept using the R word and, and that was partly fueling the kick. And so it cuts to her for just a brief second, showing her reaction to hearing this act of violence and kind of defense of her son's honor. And then it goes back to show the tooth hitting the ground and like the blood coming in and then his head pops back up. But just the, the it's just bam, 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 bam. And it's these, all of these shots selections happen within maybe the course of three seconds four seconds and it's just like rapid fire amazing editing and and it's just super effective and awesome filmmaking and i was just like this guy is on another level that is just that's perfect you you can't you can't do it better than that it's just so such a visceral and intense action that happens in the film that's just covered so perfectly no he's a master of that shit. Like it's the, the shot sequencing and like it feels new and inventive without being overly flashy, yes. which I think is a really tough line to walk for sure. And I normally 
hate it when people go over that line. He never goes over the line for me. And he takes a lot of visual risks. He does a lot of interesting kind of off the wall stuff, but it always feels right. It always feels timely. I mean, we've used this as a reference point before, but I think early Wachowski stuff feels a lot like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, I just, where you're just like, damn, I'm so fascinated by the choices you're making. Yeah. And when it's done to my taste, I I love it. I just love it. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to make choices, but it's another thing for them to like fully work and be seamless and feel a a, a piece of a whole. That's the thing. That's the thing when it's like, because I didn't notice that when I watched it the first time. And I mean, remember my first viewing was a few years ago, but I did sneakily remember the door slam shot on those vessels. And I was, but I didn't know I remembered it. But when it happened, it's like, oh, I fucking remember that shot. Mm-hmm. But I didn't remember anything about the kick and how that was covered. Not at all. And, th- and that's when it really works is when you don't really notice it totally. on first viewing. And then on repeat viewing, I'm like, holy fuck, that's perfect. Yep. And you're right. I think sometimes flashy and extreme camera work can risk kind of pulling you out of the moment a little bit. Of out of the story but when you don't notice it happened and then you watch it back later and you're like oh my god that was perfect it's like that's when it really works yep. like and, and i love when that shit happens totally um no it's brilliant uh any and what other scenes uh did you want to cover that was one that really that really struck me and then another that was crazy so kim haja mother goes to confront the trash picker i forget they had a name for him that character the older man who sells her the umbrella in the rain they called him like the the junk collector or something yes that's it the junk collector which i loved his first scene in the film where we kind of get a window into this person's character in a subtle way so it's pouring rain she's walking down the street she has refused the the detective's umbrella she comes across the junk collector She's, he's got an umbrella in, in kind of the back of his wagon that he's pulling. She grabs the umbrella and she goes to pay him for the umbrella and she holds two bills out in the rain. And he only takes one of them after, as she's offering two. So we kind of get a sense that this person is, is just, yeah. like, without knowing he's going to matter no, in the story. I, literally, like when that scene, the first time I saw it, I, I immediately thought, I want to highlight this scene as like a really nice scene because like this is like actually really sweet that this guy yeah. is only going to take half the money she's offering him. Which is so cool about that fucking scene because it's camouflaged because I wrote it down too because even though this was my second Before view, I knew that that guy was ever going to come back. Same here. There's something haunting about that scene that even when it seems like just a one-off that doesn't, it's more about her character and not so much about the story. Yeah it turns into be so much more. So that scene is kind of pulling a bit of another one of those magic acts where it doesn't seem like it's important, but you remember it because there's something about it that stands out. And then it comes later. It's like, Oh my God, that's so cool. Um, There's some, there's some clever like magic trick happening where you do a scene like that and it sticks with you that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but it's not like, it's not overplaying it either. No, it feels like, like its own yeah. contained thing that you're just like, that was interesting. You know, like there, there are times in movies, like the best movies where, where that kind of thing comes back around and you're just like, whoa, never would have seen you tie yeah. that together. And we see it, we see it a lot of times 
when it's done a little too heavy handed, you yeah. know, an easy kind of fake example. I'm just coming up with, like, let's say there's a gangster at his desk and he pulls open his desk drawer and there's a gun in the drawer and it's like shot really like intentionally or whatever. So you, it's like, okay, we all know this gun is going to matter. Good old Chekhov's gun kind of classic, but it's really fun and really exciting when they somehow thread that needle of making it memorable, but not, but you didn't even recognize that it was memorable in a way. And it just like, that's when it's like, that's so fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, funny enough, that wasn't even the scene I was going to say. Oh, okay. uh, but when he's, when she goes to him and we find out that Dojun is guilty, which is a shocking sequence also of the rock throw. Like that is just like super haunting. And being dragged up the stairs. Oh my God. Yeah. And just like the, the panic he has with his cell phone after he throws the rock where he just kind of like keeps flipping it open and closing it again. And he's kind of just like, you know, his, his brain is like fritzing out. And so that scene is, is tragic. And then we have the murder scene after that of the mother killing the junk collector guy. And that scene is just brutal. Of just like emotionally brutal. It's not. It's not like it's not indulging in the violence at all. But it's an emotionally brutal scene. And yeah. then um, you're like, mother, no. Yeah, fuck. Oh. Hey. And then she proceeds to light the place on fire. Which, by and the way, I want to say that's an incredible stunt. Actually, that that's she... what I was gonna say. I'm like, I'm looking at. It, I'm like, that's real fire. She's right next to it for quite a while. Holy shit. And I was just like, is that, is she, like, is she covered in, like, that sort of anti-flame grease? Or, I like, I don't know what, how they did that, because it's like, that's not CGI. I got to believe there's some amount of, like, depth perception kind of play there. Maybe that's I, it, I yeah. don't know, but, like, <laughs> I mean, good on Kim Hae Ja for being oh up for that. And then, well, like, right before that, so she's lighting everything on fire, and she lights the corner of the calendar, and the numbers from the heat start curling up and the day starts changing. It's so good. It's like, Oh my God, this is so fucking amazing. And again, like in 2008, it could be the biggest Hollywood blockbuster. If you saw CGI fire, you'd fucking know it. Like you, you could tell this was definitely not CGI fire. And the stunt to your point is just fucking dope, subtle, amazing stunt. It's really cool. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I was blown away by that the first time I saw it. Yeah. Just wanted to say, too, the heartbreaking turn at the end of the character who's known as uh, Crazy JP, I think. Yeah. Who, where, that's another huge reversal. We're led to believe that he's like a deviant and like, you know, he's just crazy based on the name and what we hear. And then we have that heartbreaking reveal that it's someone with Down syndrome from, from, from appearances. I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, we uh, don't get a diagnosis, but it's clear that yeah. he has. It's some someone with of with a, with an, an atypical kind of uh, mental state, yeah. and it's so so heartbreaking to see that. And her reaction is heartbreaking as well. And then the che- like the heartbreaking cherry on the top is like he tells her not to cry as he leaves the room. Again, like talking about subtle Chekhov's guns and and you and I often talk about setups and payoffs and stuff like the nosebleed coming back around to the being the thing that, that they pinned it on the JP character. 
is like everything in the movie that has this sort of like the payoff portion is set up so subtly. So we as an audience know that this character has nosebleeds frequently. We heard it referenced. So we know that JP is not lying, that that is, that is what happened. And we also know who the real killer is. We've seen all this. But it makes sense why the cops wouldn't believe it. So that scene is just, that scene is just, again, super heartbreaking. And, and we, may, we may cut this out, but I have a family member who have, has Down syndrome. So it really, that scene was really uh, difficult to me, specifically on second viewing. Um, I mean, it was difficult the first time, but at, at that point, this person hadn't been born yet. So uh, I knew it was coming, though. And I was kind of like, how am I going to react to yeah. this scene that I know is kind of in the works? It's heavy. And it was, it's really heavy, really tough. But like, I, I do like when movies explore difficult ideas. And it was, you know, it was a challenging scene to watch, but yeah, I knew it was coming. And, um, you know. Well, it, I, think, I think it's intentional. It, it feels like Bong Joon-ho again, is pointing the finger at the justice system in Korea and saying, like, this is who is being punished for, for this, you know? Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, people with Down syndrome being prosecuted is a regular occurrence there. I have no idea. But it seems to me that he's saying that a lot of innocent people and, like, sometimes the most innocent people are, are being punished by this system. Yeah. Just get just get caught up. I mean, yeah, that is just something that is um, always kind of interesting. To like the people getting ground up in the system is never going to end. Both people will always that will happen. But in terms of a good base for a story, unfortunately, because it's just something that just happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's it's a it's a really really powerful scene, and uh, I, I think it's it's commendable that they included it. For absolutely, they don't. They don't let these characters off the hook. No, no, and we're, and no one is more heartbroken other than like than us and mother, at this realization. And again, that is that is a really important element of it, is like we all kind of share in this sort of sadness in that moment. Um, two other scenes I wanted to give quick shout outs. This one we're hitting the time machine, going way back to the start of the film, but let's talk about that opening shot. How fucking great is that opening shot of her in the field? The music is perfect. Like, it's gorgeously shot. It's so odd. It just kind of pulls you right in. And it's like, what's going on here? Well, and the the mirroring of the opening shot to the dancing at the end of the movie. Yes. Is phenomenal. that, That shot at the end of the film, the bus on the bus sunlight shining through yeah a little bit of kind of kinetic energy in the camera the song that shot's on my short list for my favorite shot of the year i something about it is just so effective to me the great tony Zhao on youtube did a uh youtube channel called every frame a painting and i've definitely sent you some of these videos in the past they're some of my favorite video essays i think he is one of the great minds to ever deconstruct film. Uh, and I'm excited to see what he does. He hasn't been uh, posting anything in a long time. He, he stopped doing every frame of painting a couple of years ago. But um, he did one on this movie and the way that this movie uses telephoto lenses and shooting 
profile shots. So it's a, a telephoto lens, for those who don't know, is a, a really long lens. You, you need to be setting your camera pretty far back from the subject if you're trying to get someone in a close-up like this movie uses the, the telephoto lenses for. Um, but it gives you a really kind of like distant but also close feel. People use it for landscape shots like outdoors a lot where it'll bring things that are really like far away into close focus. Um, it kind of shortens the length, you know, between you and things basically. Right, right, right. Um, so he did a video essay about this and he'll explain this way better than I ever could. Every, I'll put this in the, the show notes when we show post this episode. Sure, yeah. um, it's only like a five minute video, but he breaks down like what this is doing and it, the way that they do it in profile where it's on the side of the character and you're only seeing half of their face there's an unknowability to those characters and he does it throughout this movie. He lets you in, uh, he being Bong, obviously in this case, uh, he goes by director Bong on set. I kind of want to keep calling him director Bong. Director but Bong. the way sure. that director Bong kind of sets up his shots in profile and he, he doesn't let you in with these characters. He, you know, you only get part of their story. You know, he's even doing it like when, uh, when Do June gets beat up in prison and he has the memory returned to him of his mother attempting to commit joint suicide with him. Mm -hmm. Um, he covers up half his face. Mm -hmm. They like, there's always some element of like preventing you from seeing the whole of what this person is thinking. It's really fascinating. Yeah, let's give a shout out to the cinematographer too. We're talking about some of these shots uh, by the name of Hong Kyung Pyo and did just an amazing job in this movie. Brilliant. Like I was thinking of a lot of a lot of shots and we talked about, you know, scenes that we loved for either the stunt work or the editing or just like how they make you feel or whatever. Um, but remember that shot where it's like you mentioned the lawyer scene telling giving the four year pitch at the karaoke scene. And there's that shot of mother kind of chugging the the drink that's handed to her. And she's like kind of not quite in center frame. She's a little bit off to the left in sort of dead zone area. The the wall, there's like wallpaper on the wall behind her. A lot of negative her. space. And there's the, uh, the disco ball or whatever there is spinning. So there's like some light moving around in the shot. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful shot. I was like, How holy How about the hell. scene after... Uh, Dojun pisses on the wall. And, oh and the, my god, and the I love bus that takes scene. Off and it's just her at the bus stop with the giant wall of of stone behind her. Um, I love I love stuff with like lots yeah. of negative space like that. Yeah, and the scene right before that when he's when we get a lot of that sort of that a lot of that sort of creepy mother son stuff early on in the film, and one of them is when he's being she's feeding him the soup broth while he's peeing and there's this crazy great shot of him drinking the broth it's from from on high kind of like maybe a foot or two above the character he's drinking the broth the broth bowl is in the shot and we're also seeing down on the ground like the river the river of urine that's forming yeah. like at his feet and like trickling down the, the sidewalk. And I'm just like, that is an incredible shot. You know what I'm just realizing too, as we're talking about this, I love that the movie mirrors her weird obsession with trying to get rid of like 
pools of liquid. So the beginning of the movie, she tries to like kick away his pee from that area for some reason. And then at the end of the movie, after she bashes in the junk dealers uh, or the junk collector's head, she tries to mop up mop like up the, the giant blood. pool of blood. And, and it's just like, what are you going to do with this? It's totally. dirt. There's something, I you know I'm so bad at this shit. But there's something going on in this movie with liquids and like fluids, and I can't get to the bottom of it. But his there's... drool on the on the table. Oh, drool! I didn't even think of saliva, but that's a that's a great one too. There's a lot. I mean, water seems really important. There's a lot of rain. There's a lot of things like ponds, rivers, and and people drinking water. But then there's also blood, like you mentioned. There's glue at one point, right before the interrogation sequence that we talked about. We see Jin Tae step on like a, like a tube of glue that oozes out. Mm-hmm. And we see like all these sorts of mud, like you said, saliva. Like they, the movie seems to be saying something. I don't know what, but about like liquids and fluids and is taking to the time to show these things. I don't know what it means, but it's on purpose for sure. It wouldn't be us if we weren't just spitting into the wind. Yeah, just uh, just baffled and not not helping. Someone else. That's a, that's a good topic for a YouTube film that someone could make. But I'm not going to do that one. We're gent. We're surface. Well, any other uh, thoughts on Mother? No, not really, man. I think we've covered a lot of the stuff I wanted to hit. I'm super super glad we got to this movie. Just when we did, I was happy when you put it on the board. It was original, right? No, it wasn't an original. No, this was a replacement. Okay, so this was a replacement film, but I've been looking forward to revisiting it. I had only seen it the once, and it just is just as good, if not better, than my reaction to the first viewing. And he's one of the best filmmakers alive right now, I think. Or one of my favorites, I should say. He makes incredible movies, and I'm very interested to see the barking dog never bites like that. That just seems kind of cool. Well, that'll do it tonight on uh, mother. I'd say that's time to add something back to the board here. It is a week for Jared to make a selection. Do you have one in mind? So this, this one came up naturally. I heard Bill Hader in that podcast. I mentioned about Barry mention repo man. And I was like, you know, I've never seen that movie. And so I was like, I want to put that on the maybe board. And then I just recently watched Escape from New York, which has a great Harry Dean Stanton performance. And I was like, you know, I really want to see more of this guy, of his work that he did. And I just found out he's in Repo Man. So it's like, okay, this is a, a movie I've only ever heard of. I know it's considered a classic. Never seen it. Have you ever seen Repo Man, Drew? No, but it's a cult classic that I've always had on my radar. Uh, So, yeah, I'm very down for this. Okay, and so it checks the Harry Dean Stanton bucks, and I don't know shit about it. And also, it's been a little while, I feel like, since I put a movie on the board that neither of us have seen. So it's good. It's kind of back to like, okay, we don't know much about this, or I don't, and we've not seen it. Let's do Repo Man. All right. I'm fucking down. Let's do it. Repo Man is going in at number 17 in place of Mother. Beautiful, beautiful. Want to run through the list? Absolutely. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. At number two, Ex Machina. At number three, The Right Stuff. 
At number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The King of Comedy. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Putney Swope. Number 17, Repo Man. Number 18, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Number 19, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And at number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. We had three Jareds in a row. Last week was a Drew. Yep. Let's see if someone can get a streak going or take the mantle back. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go throw this thing. <laughs> the dart has spoken what's it got to say there jared the dart said 16 whoa 16 what is it you're making such a big face what's 16 16 is a new number, my friend. New it's, number alert, baby. It's an original, baby. original dartboard selection, which they're starting to dwindle. I think we're down into the single digits at this point. The movie is Robert Downey's Putney Swope. Putney Swope. Okay. This has been a bit of a white whale of mine for some time. We'll get into how it got on the board when we watch the movie, but... Everyone, uh, yeah, this is a classic that, uh, you know, this is, a, a again, part of kind of dartboard movie night uh, lore, kind of origin story. Me and Jared are both massive Paul Thomas Anderson fans. This is a movie that he has referenced a number of times as one of his all-time favorites. Bob Downey is uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s father, is the the filmmaker behind this, this movie. Um, it's going to be an interesting one. I'm super yeah. fucking excited to watch this for the first time. I'm very interested. I've heard a lot of storytellers and directors that I love, including PTA and beyond, who have mentioned this movie. It almost seems like a little bit like a like a velvet underground of movies, where it's like not super famous at its time, but became really influential to people down the road. And uh, so I don't know. I really don't know much about it, and I'm very excited to check it out. So Putney Swope uh, is, again, a 1969 movie by Robert Downey Sr. Right now, it is streaming on the Criterion channel, actually. So if anyone wants to go support a really cool organization, they have a streaming platform. Otherwise, it's available to rent on Amazon, uh, YouTube, any any of those platforms. So should be readily a bit available. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a great opportunity to support some uh, independent cinema uh, from criterion i'm excited new number 16 putney swope should be fucking dope well thank you so much for listening everybody just please remember to give us a five stars and a follow on apple podcast spotify wherever you like to listen if you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at dartboardmovienight all the artwork for the show is created by veronica roman and all of our music is by eric williams play us out eric Later. Sorry, Mike.